Can you turn please to Ephesians chapter 1? Ephesians chapter 1, and I'll bounce around a little bit, but if you keep Ephesians open, hopefully most of the rest of the places that I go will be on the screen, and if you really want to chew over this afterwards with the audio, I can send you the, the presentation, and, and you can use that if you wish. Let's just pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Father, I ask that you would be with us as we start this journey through this letter. That Lord, your word and your spirit would transform us. That our hearts would be open as we have sang about. And that you would come and do that amazing creative new creative power and work of transformation within all of us, Lord. Let us not be thinking of someone else to whom something may apply, but Lord, let our hearts be open and ready to hear and ready to be transformed. We love you and we praise you and we thank you that we have this book and we have this document in this book that has been preserved for us. Lord, enlighten our hearts and our understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. So, previously in Ephesus, last week we started the journey, but we didn't make it as far as Ephesians last week. Last week we just looked at what happened when Paul turned up and the Holy Spirit turned up in Ephesus in Acts 19. And there was one word that summed up what happened in Ephesus when Paul and the Holy Spirit showed up. Do you remember what the word was? Please get it right. Nobody. Anybody? Oh, come on. You're wasting time. If it's a long message, it's your fault. Now, come on. Nobody? Oh, thank you. Bless you, brother. Sweeties for you afterwards. It was transformation. Whenever the Spirit showed up in Ephesus, 12 disciples were transformed who had not previously been transformed. When the Spirit showed up, the, um, the people in the synagogue were transformed as Paul taught them from the Word of God. When the Spirit showed up, the pagans were transformed and they burned their books. When the Spirit showed up, the idolaters were transformed and the silversmiths ran out of trade because nobody wanted their idols anymore. Transformation is what happened. And this letter is an invitation to transformation. This letter, I really want to, to, to say to you, let us go on a journey together in this letter. Let's not just have Sunday morning sermons, but actually let's go on a journey together. Give yourself to it. Read it during the week. Chew over the passage that we have done the previous Sunday and the passage that we're doing the next Sunday. And just go deep in this letter with me, with us, with anyone else who might take a portion of it and teach or preach on it. This is about transformation. And I do believe if you give yourself fully to it, every single man, woman and child in this room will be changed by some part of this letter. 
It is impossible. It is so lofty and grand in one place and then so absolutely down-to-earth practical Monday morning in other places. You cannot fail to be transformed. If at the end of chapter 6 you look back over this time spent in, in this letter, you have two options. If you have not been changed, either you sack the preacher or you admit that you've got a hard heart. <laughs> because this will change you. Give yourself fully to it. This, this letter talks about life in place of death. Talks about unity and reconciliation in place of division and separation. Talks about righteousness in place of wickedness. It talks about love and peace in the place of hatred and strife. And it talks about conflict with evil instead of compromise with evil. One writer said that when Christians become discouraged, feel weak and insignificant, or lose their sense of identity and purpose, Ephesians can provide the necessary reminder of the following things. So if that, if that describes you, discouraged, weak, insignificant, loss of identity and purpose, here's what Ephesians can do for you. It will remind you of the important part that you have to play in God's great plan. It will remind you of the fact that the quality of our lives together in the church has everything to do with the church's carrying out its task in the world. The quality of our lives together. And it will remind you of the power that has been made available in Christ to move us on towards the calling that God has given. Another writer, a guy called C.H. Dodd, said this is the crown of Paul's writings. Six chapters. 155 verses, two and a half thousand words in Greek, four or five pages in your Bible. In one sense, this is a small letter. Small. You think of, of a few pages, a bit of ink, a small word count. But in every other sense, it is massive. And the things that Paul deals with in this letter are massive issues and he uses massive words. Listen to some of the phrases just to pull them out to get the bigness of what Paul's talking about. He talks about incomparably great power. He talks about the great love. He talks about the riches of God's grace, the riches of his glorious inheritance, the unsearchable riches of Christ, the incomparable riches of his grace. We are God's masterpiece in this letter. We, talk, we hear about the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And we hear about God's ability to do immeasurably more than all we ask. This is a big letter. Full of big words in terms of not big as in long, but big as in just big descriptive massive thoughts. Massive descriptions of grace and power and the love of God. And it even has enormous sentences. Anybody that has studied Ephesians will know that some of the sentences in this letter are ridiculously long. And I'll mention that a little bit later. The author of the letter, the very first word in your Bible, if you're looking at Ephesians chapter 1, the very first word is Paul. And straight away there's a question mark. For about the past 200 years, a lot of scholars have questioned whether or not Paul wrote this letter. But the vast majority of conservative Christian scholars believe he wrote it. That this is the work of Paul that no one else could have put Paul's thoughts together the way Ephesians has Paul's thoughts together. If there was somebody else in the early church who was fit to write 
a document like this, we would know who they are. This is Paul. And he says that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul was called. You are called. And I am called. And sometimes that will be all that you have. In dark and in difficult moments, the only thing that you will have to cling to, I know I was called. And Paul went through, and you'll read it in many of his letters, incredible discouragement. Incredible moments of despair and attack of every conceivable type. But he never doubted his calling. He emphasized it. He defended it. He held it out at the start of many of his letters, the fact that he was called. And everything else might attack and oppose, but he knows that he's called. The recipients of the letters, and again there's a question mark here, because in some of the earliest copies of Ephesians, in verse 1, the words in Ephesus are missing. And a lot of people think, and this is where I do tend to agree, and a lot of the people that that I read tend to agree as well, this was probably what's called a circular letter that was read in a whole lot of different churches. It might have started in Ephesus, it might have ended up in Ephesus being kept there, but it would have gone around and been read quite a few different places. And... That's why there are not really any personal greetings in it the way you will read in Romans or 1 Corinthians. He's not dealing with with direct issues. He's giving this lofty grand picture of the Christian life. And he addresses it to the saints. Now, do not misunderstand the word saints because you're in a room full of them. (laughs) Okay? You're in a room full of saints. Just take a look at each other, look one another up, up and down. Despite all of it, you're saints. That's God's people. It's not some special elite version of God's people. All God's people are saints. Yes, Sophia, your da is a saint. <laughs> Be- believe it, sister. <laughs> saints. God's special chosen people. The word literally means holy people. And it's plural. When you read Paul's letters, he writes to the church the vast majority of the time. Even when he writes to Timothy, he's writing to the church at Ephesus where Timothy is the leader. He is writing to a group of people. Our faith must not become so individual and privatized that we somehow make ourselves separate from the church. You cannot be a Christian without the church. You can't. We are people in community. John Stott, who has written and taught brilliantly on Ephesians, says nobody can emerge from a careful reading of Paul's letter to the Ephesians with a privatized gospel. Just me and Jesus. You can't come away from Ephesians thinking like that. You are part of a bigger picture. And we'll see this big picture woven through the passage that we're going to look at today. This is the gospel of the church. It sets forth God's eternal purpose to create through Jesus Christ a new society. A new community, a new group of people together who will show the world the character of God. 
This whole letter is about God's new society. And I want to, to throw out the question as we, I had about five titles for this passage, but I've stuck with this one. What drives your life? What drives your life? And the reason I, I came to this, you know, who, who you think you are will drive what you do. If you have got your identity wrong, and you must get this, because this is the way Ephesians is written. If you have got your identity wrong in the first few chapters of Ephesians, if you don't know who you are, then in the last few chapters, you won't know how to live. What drives a follower of Jesus to live in a way that honors him? You've got to know your identity. You've got to know who you are. And the reason for that old picture of a steam train is this, this comes from J.I. Packer, and I think it's brilliant. He, say, he describes how an old steam locomotive would have ran. It was a pretty simple machine. You had coal burning. The heat of the coal burning was used to heat water and turn the water into steam. The steam expanded in a cylinder and drove pistons up and down, and the train went forward. And the Indians stood in the old west of America and talked about the iron horse. They were amazed at this huge thing of such tremendous mass, and yet it moved. And Packer said that Paul, for Paul, these ideas that we're going to look at this morning, these were like the steam in our lives. As we think about these tremendous truths in this passage, that God has done for us in Christ. They expand inside us and cause us to move forwards. And to live in a way that honors God. And that causes others to step back and look and say, wow, how does that happen? And I think that, that illustration of the, the steam in the locomotive is what every preacher and teacher really tries to do in the time that they've got whenever they're opening the word in front of people. I want to put steam in your cylinders every Sunday morning. When Marcus preaches, he wants to put steam in your cylinders. When we bring a guest in, we want them to put steam in because as these great truths of God's word expand within you, they will then lead to movement. Do you get the picture? The steam drives the movement. You get the truth, you then get the life. You've got to know who you are. If you took Paul and you opened him up, what would you find inside him? How does Paul bleed? Have you ever heard somebody saying, you know, if you cut me, I bleed such and such. You might get a, a, a mental football fan who'll say, you know, if you cut me, I bleed light blue because I'm a Man City fan or whatever. If you cut Paul, how does he bleed? What's inside him? What comes out of him? In a moment of outburst, that's a good question for all of us, isn't it? In a moment of outburst, what actually bursts out? Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And Spurgeon said, what's in the well comes up in the bucket. What bursts out of you when you're opened up? In the first <clears throat> portion of this letter, Paul opens up. 
And he, he gives a single sentence, and I'm going to read it now, the whole thing. It just bursts out of him. You've got to feel sorry for the poor guy who was writing it down. You maybe think yourself it's hard to write notes when Spence is preaching because he goes so quick and he covers so much ground. You will feel for the scribe who tried to write this. Let's read Ephesians chapter 1 from verse 3 to 14. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. One sentence. 202 words in Greek, no punctuation. Just right now, Think, spare a thought for the guy who tried to write it down. As Paul just exploded in praise. I can imagine him looking around and saying, did you get that? (laughs) Did you get that? He didn't plan this. This wasn't carefully structured. This just came out of him. If you try to dissect this, a guy called Bruce Milne said, dissecting this is like trying to dissect a rainbow. It just all merges together and you cannot tease it apart. And if you spend ages here, you'll miss what Paul's doing. He is moving at a breathless pace. And I want to preach at a breathless pace so you can get the gist of it. I don't want to spend 10 weeks in this passage nitpicking over every point. There are massive points. You go home and nitpick over them. This is about coming overhead, flying low and certain looking down at the terrain and then moving on. Glorious. It stays with you. You don't forget it. But what is it that drives Paul? What's the steam in this man's engine? What is this driving force of his life? Paul, who do you think you are? I want to show you what Paul bleeds. Paul bleeds praise. Paul bleeds praise. In verse 3, the first word that he says after his introduction, he calls them to praise. And it's almost as if when he says the word praise, it just then starts this chain reaction inside him that he starts praising God for all his goodness. He gets lost in praise. I was listening to somebody the other day, I can't remember who it was, but he was telling a story about someone that he knew 
who he just looked to, who had tremendous poise, a tremendous walk with God, a person of deep wisdom and spiritual maturity. And he asked this guy, he says, how, how do you do it? And the guy said that in addition to all the usual spiritual disciplines of study and prayer and fellowship, he said, I practice the discipline of adoration. He says, I prioritize the discipline of adoration, just adoring Jesus. That might be in the quietness of the morning at home. It might be in the quietness late at night. It might be in the car on the way to work. It might be on a Sunday morning here. But he says, I practice adoration. I make time to just praise him. Paul was a man who bleeds praise and adoration. Paul is a man who also bleeds the Trinity. Sometimes people say, you never really read of the Trinity in Paul's writings. He never explicitly says, here is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But if you've never seen the Trinity in Paul, you've never read him because it's everywhere, woven in all over the place. In verse 3, he says, praise be to God. He says that God has blessed us with spiritual blessings. And when you read the word spiritual in your Bible, here's a little hint. When you read in Paul the word spiritual, don't think fluffy, weird, you know, that's a spiritual person, whatever that may mean. Put a capital S at the front of it. The word spiritual means things that have got to do with the Holy Spirit. Just the same as the word physical means things that have got to do with your physique. Spiritual means of the Spirit. These blessings are of the Spirit and they are in Christ. There is the Trinity, God and the Spirit and Christ. That just comes out of Paul. And he talks in this letter using a phrase that he doesn't use anywhere else. The heavenly realms. The heavenly realms. What do we know about the heavenly realms? We know that Paul calls us to look beyond physical reality, that there is another reality that we cannot see, but it is right beside us. And we know that in that reality, Christ is there. From Ephesians, later in Ephesians 1, Christ is there. We know that we are there from Ephesians 2. We are seated with him in heavenly places. And we know from Ephesians 6 that the devil is there as well. There is a realm around us. Don't just think heaven and and whatever way you think of heaven. But there is a realm around us that Paul calls the heavenly realm. And that is where Christ is, where we are, and also where Satan can attack. According to Ephesians. We need to see life from the reality of that realm. Not just what we see around us. And another thing that Paul bleeds when you cut him open, he bleeds Christ. Oh, the man is obsessed. Just obsessed. About 10 or 11 times just in this passage, he says, in Christ or through Christ or in him. About 30 times in the letter that phrase appears. Any form of Christianity that does not have Christ at the absolute center is a fraud. It is a fake and it is to be discarded and, and rejected. Paul is a man obsessed with Jesus. And I hope that as we go through this letter, you will become even more obsessed with Jesus than you already are.
So he goes on to talk about these blessings. What is blessing? Were you blessed this week? Anybody, you know, have anybody ever talked to you like that? Were you, did God bless you this week? And we're told to count our blessings. And for Paul, he's going to list some blessings that have nothing to do with what he owns, nothing to do with where he lives, nothing to do with who he knows, nothing to do with his current state of health or lack of health, nothing to do with the clothes that he's wearing. You need to remember that the clothes that he's wearing are prison clothes. He's got a chain on as he writes this. And yet he's able to break out in praise like this. What are some of the blessings that Paul speaks of? We're going to fly over them. I'm going to annoy you because you're going to be thinking, oh, you should spend more time there. No, I want to bring this the way Paul brought it. One of the blessings in verse 4 is that we are chosen in Christ. Chosen. Now, there's a word that will divide people very quickly. And it is the word election. We're not talking about Donald Trump or Brexit. We're talking about the doctrine of election. You put two Christians in a room to talk about election and you will have five opinions. Okay? Because even in our own minds, we can't get our heads around this. Let me tell you one or two things quickly and we'll move on. The Bible never, ever, ever speaks of God choosing people to be lost. Never is there the suggestion that somebody out walking down that street is chosen to be saved in the future and somebody walking down the other street has been chosen in advance to be lost no matter what they do. That is not a biblical understanding. It is not a biblical understanding. Whenever you read of election, and God knows, don't misunderstand me, God knows who will, who will be saved and who will be lost. But I don't believe he makes that decision in advance and says to someone, you know, effectively, from the moment you're born, you have no hope. You cannot accept what Jesus did for you. I have decided that in advance. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. Election is always, not always, the vast majority of the time, about a group of people. In the Old Testament, the elect people of God was the nation of Israel called to show forth his character to the world. Jesus reconstituted Israel around himself and in the New Testament, the elect of God are the church. When Paul speaks of the elect, he's talking plural about the church. They are the elect. They are the elect. And if you are part of the church, you're part of the elect. And if you're not part of the church, you're not part of the elect. The church is God's elect, chosen people on the earth. And when you become part of the church, you become part of the elect. Election also brings up echoes of Exodus. And I want to see this throughout the passage. God chose a people in Exodus. And Paul sees that he has chosen a people again. In Deuteronomy 7... Paul, or Moses writes, God hasn't done this for you because you were anything special. Or sorry, the Lord has chosen you out of all peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. He elected Israel. He chose them. And what did he choose us for? If you read in verse 4 and 5, he chose us to be holy and blameless, to live a life in this world that honors him. 
That's the first blessing. The second blessing that Paul mentions here is the blessing of being adopted as sons. Now, ladies, you might not like that, but let me explain. The reason you want to be adopted as a son is because the son got the inheritance. It doesn't mean you have to have some sort of odd view of your own gender. It means you're going to get an inheritance. That's what adoption means. In the ancient world, adoption was usually not of an unwanted or a mistreated baby, but adoption was of an adult male who would then carry on the family line and the family business. That's what adoption meant. And Paul says, I am blessed because I am adopted. And again, there are echoes of Exodus. Because in Exodus, God says to Pharaoh through Moses, Israel is my firstborn son. And Paul sees that coming through of the ble- in the blessings of being in Christ. The third blessing is that we are redeemed through his blood. And the idea is that we've been liberated from slavery. Redemption meant buying a slave and setting him free. And again, the picture comes from Exodus, where God says in Exodus 6, he says, I will free you from being slaves and I will redeem you. That's what God does for people. People who are enslaved to sin and to selfishness and to addiction, God sets them free. In the Exodus, he set them free by leading them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea and away from Pharaoh's army. In the New Testament, he has delivered us from sin through the blood of Jesus and no other way. And not only are we redeemed, but we also have the sense of being forgiven. The Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah looked forward to a time that God would forgive his people's sins and remember them no more. But the problem is, just as in ancient Israel, there were some who repeatedly grumbled and said, we want to go back to Egypt. Likewise, there are some Christians who keep on pining to go back to slavery. They keep on running back to sin Jesus has set us free. We're chosen, we're adopted, we're redeemed, and we're enlightened. We have understanding. If you look at verse 9, it says that God made known to us the mystery of his will. God's will for your life is not a mystery. God's will for this people on earth called the church is not a mystery. His will for humanity is not a mystery. He has revealed it. And he has revealed it in the words of verse 10. He did it in Christ to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment. What's God's will? God's will is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That's God's will. That's God's will. He wants to bring all things together under Christ. There are echoes of Exodus here. The fact that we have seen something that others did not see, that's what Moses asked for in Exodus. He said, show me your glory. I know this is audacious, and I know it's ambitious, and I know you could kill me, but show me your glory. And Moses gets to see what others had not seen. We have got to see what others have not seen, the mystery of God's plan to bring heaven and earth together. Again, there is talk of inheritance in Exodus where God says to Moses, he's going to bring the people into a good and a spacious land. He's going to give them an inheritance. And the inheritance that we have 
is that we will inherit this new heaven and new earth. Some people have the idea that the only thing we want is to escape earth and get to heaven. That's not biblical. Because what God wants is to bring heaven and earth together. Read Ephesians 1.10 again if you don't see it. To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. I don't think God begins the book with in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And ends the book with the earth went pear-shaped and he was just left with the heavens. Because the book that I read ends with heaven and earth coming together in Revelation. How can we miss it in Revelation 21 where, he, where, where John speaks of a new heaven and a new earth and he sees this city coming down from heaven to earth, the uniting of heaven and earth under Christ. That's our inheritance. That is what we have to look forward to. The last blessing that Paul lists is the blessing of being sealed. That means there is a mark of ownership on you. It's like God has stamped you. You're mine. You belong to me. The seal was something that if, if a person was purchasing something and they, and they wanted to lay a deposit on it, they would place a deposit on it, maybe 10%, say, I'll come back in a week, I'll pay the rest, and I'll bring this stuff home with me. The owner of the stuff would put a seal on it and say, that belongs to him. That belongs to him. Not only are we sealed in verse 13, we're sealed with a promise. The Holy Spirit is the seal. That's why last week in Acts 19, Paul was so concerned when he met those Ephesian disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Have you been sealed? Have you been sealed? And the Spirit is referred to in verse 14 as a deposit. That is the same word that is still used in modern Greek for an engagement ring. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus did when he reached down and poured out the Holy Spirit. He put an engagement ring on the finger of the church. He said, you're mine. There's a period of waiting, but you're mine. And there will be a marriage. The Holy Spirit is the seal and the deposit. And again, in Exodus, we read of God saying, I will take you as my own people. You're mine. Sealed, marked out for me. And also in Exodus 33, the thing that marks them out is different. That seal, that mark of ownership that I've just said in Ephesians is the Holy Spirit. In Exodus 33, it is God's presence, which of course is the same thing. Moses says to God, what else will distinguish me and your people from all other people on the face of the earth? It's only his presence. That's the seal. That's the distinctive mark. What is blessing? Were you blessed this week? Oh, the car didn't start. Oh, I had a difficult day on Tuesday in work. Oh, I got the flu. Oh, I prayed and prayed and prayed for this to happen, but that happened. I wasn't really blessed this week. Didn't feel God's blessing. Folks, wise up. <laughs> Look at the screen. Were you chosen in Christ this week? Were you adopted through Christ this week? Were you redeemed through Christ this week? 
Were you enlightened and given understanding about the will of God this week? Were you sealed in the Holy Spirit this week? Were you blessed? Did you have a blessed week? I had a blessed week. I'm having a blessed day. Do you know what? Tomorrow is going to be a blessed day. No matter what happens. Because nothing can change those things. That's the steam that drives Paul. Regardless of circumstances and whether a prayer is answered or not. Or whether sickness comes or not. Or whether the car starts or not. Or whatever. Those things don't drive Paul. And they should not drive us. We're driven by these blessings. The blessings of being in Christ. Who do you think you are? Because if you realize who you are, you know what? The stuff in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 will start to come naturally when you know who you are. When you don't doubt that you're forgiven. Some people struggle awfully. It is truth. It is fact. It is down to a historical reality, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're forgiven. Accept it. Believe in it. Let it be the steam that drives the engine on to holy living. I wonder what sort of week Paul had when he wrote this. With those chains around his legs and maybe around his hands. Rattling. No daylight. Rats in the cell. You didn't get food brought to you on a tray by a Roman soldier. If some of the Christians in the city where he was imprisoned did not bring him food, he did not eat. But he was blessed. (laughs) Because see, the blessing of God transcends everything. And it gets into the darkest, dirtiest holes on earth. It is not restricted by chains and prison guards. Do we have any idea how blessed we are? And finally, Paul stops. And finally, I will stop. And he takes a breath and the scribe with a sweat lashing off him and whatever implement he was using almost melting in his hand sighs a sigh of relief. There's a pause. Did you get that? Did you get that? And he finishes in verse 14 saying, To the praise of his glory. I hope that at least one of you right now is thinking politely, I wish you would just shut up because I want to praise God. Because Paul said all of this is to the praise of his glory. All of this is meant to awaken praise within us. God's call on us is to be a worshipping people. And in the Exodus, again, the Exodus is all through this. In the Exodus again, God repeatedly for four chapters says the same thing over and over again to old hard-hearted Pharaoh. Let my people go so that they may worship me. I'm going to redeem them so that they can worship me. Do you bleed praise the way Paul bleeds praise? Have you ever been at an event that's just been so good? that you can't wait for the performer to stop. Please don't compare this to this sermon, but that you can't wait for the performer to stop so that you can applaud. You ever been in a concert or listened to a musician or a singer and you've just been so struck by the skill and the beauty of it? Ever been in an arena with maybe 20,000 people and one person's at the front with an acoustic guitar singing a song and it is deathly silent? 
And then when the last note fades out, there is rapturous applause. That's the effect that Paul wants you to have when you read this portion. That you've had your breath taken away by the majesty and the grandeur of it all. And you just want to stand to your feet and applaud God. Not applaud Paul, not applaud whoever reads this passage and tries in a stumbling, awkward way to teach through it. But applaud God for what he has done in Jesus. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Let's pray and let's praise